So Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, it says, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus is praying, and here he describes a universe where he is in control. He says all things have been given to him by his Father. He describes our state as Christians as an amazing one, that he's chosen to reveal the Father to us. He's chosen us. He's drawn us so that we've come to him. He's called us to himself so that we can be blessed people. And then he describes what that relationship with God should do to our lives. He says that if we come to him, then we'll have rest. We'll have a light yoke. We'll have a light burden. Our souls will have rest. It's like when we come to Jesus, we're finally home. We've taken off the heavy bags that we've been carrying. We've laid them aside, and now we're home. We're resting with Jesus Christ. And he's not just talking about heaven off in the future. He's talking about the life that we can have now, a life of inner peace and rest in Jesus Christ. But most of us would say that that doesn't describe our lives. We would say, you know, my life is absolutely crazy. We spend our year looking forward to summer because summer is when things are going to calm down, and we're here. Um, has it calmed down for you? Summers are crazy. We're, it seems like those are crazy times, and we always have this next time that's going to come up on the horizon, and that'll be the time when we can rest more. When we finally get to the holidays, that'll be relaxing. And it's not. It's like a mirage that's off on the distance that when we finally get there, we'll have rest, and we don't. Um, we're busy. We're burdened, we're tired, we're exhausted, we're depleted. We always feel like there's just this one more mountain in front of us in our lives, and if I can just get over that mountain, that's when life will start to get normal, that's when things will level out, that's when I'll have my peace, that's when I'll have my rest. But we get over that mountain and we just find another mountain. And it's been happening for years, but, but this time, this mountain, this is the last one. We think that after I graduate, then life gets normal and I'll have rest. After I get the promotion, after I change shifts, after I pay off this next debt, when I finally get the house, when the kids go to college, when the kids are out of college, when college is paid for, when I can retire, we always have these things in front of us that when I finally get there, that'll be the place where I can rest. But until then, we're just busy. In fact, most of the time when people ask us how we're doing, and I'm right there with you, what's our answer? Our answer is, I'm busy. I, mean, I don't know anybody who says, this is what my life is like. I just, I feel like I don't have enough on my calendar. I just, I feel underscheduled all the time. You know, I go to work and there's just not enough to do. And so I sit around and then they send me home early and pay me way too much. I, I, I just feel like there's not enough going on in my life. I, I feel like I've got more than enough time for everything. I wish there was just more to do. Nobody says that. We're overscheduled, we're overworked, we're overburdened, we'll cut out sleep to try to get some extra work in, and then we compensate with caffeine, which is why we serve great coffee here, to wake you up and help you engage with the gospel for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, because we're exhausted. We're wiped out, heavy-laden people. And then even when we do take breaks, our minds are still spinning, and we're still thinking of all that we have to do. 
And we have technology that's supposed to help us live freer lives, but in many ways, it just doesn't do it. Now, I don't want this to be some kind of Amish rant where I say, like, all technology is bad, and I say it into a face mic and put the verses to prove it on the big screen behind me. Um, that's not it. Like, technology is not all bad. Uh, Christians sometimes will be either 100% for something or 100% against something. We run to polls very quickly. Um, there's a lot of technology that's good that we need to be thankful for. Christians shouldn't be people who are always raging against the machines. Um, we, there's a lot that they bring to our lives that is a good thing. And in fact, when Christians have seen new communication technology especially coming out, when Christians have jumped in on the leading edge of that technology, it's worked to spread the gospel all over the world. And when the printing press first came out, a little German monk named Martin Luther, he jumped on that train immediately, started writing and publishing, translating the Bible, sending it all over the place, and it led to... I'm sure there's someone on TV who uses TV to accurately teach the Bible. Um, When... Maybe. Uh, when, when the internet first came out, I benefited hugely because some people got on the leading edge of that and started spreading the gospel and teaching there. Uh, I think it's a good thing that uh, we've been able as a church to use Facebook to, to spread the gospel to people and tell people about our church. And right when Facebook was rising, we were able to kind of get the gospel and get the message of Grace Road in there, and people came. So it, it's worked to get the gospel to a lot of people. Uh, did I say something funny? Oh, thanks. <laughs> So you just never know. But um, you know, I think cell phones are, are a good technology. I love being able to talk to my wife all throughout the day. I think they're a big improvement over smoke signals, you know, unless, unless you're on T-Mobile like me, in which case smoke signals are a little bit more reliable. But um, I, I think having, having an iPhone in your pocket is the equivalent of like having this full-time servant who works for you. You've got a map of the world in there. You've got a library in there. You've got your Bible app on there. And that stuff is good. But again, we tend to say it's either all good or all bad, and we need to be discerning and even a little bit suspicious of it, because things rarely are all good or all bad. You know, technology's brought a lot of good, but there's also an awful lot that we need to evaluate. And when we know some of the very obvious bad fruit is we, we deal with a lot of guys who are struggling with internet pornography and the difficulties that's brought into a lot of lives, but there are more subtle bad fruits that come from technology too especially in the way that they interrupt our work and rest patterns, where we seem like because we've got technology, because it's always there, it's always in our pockets, we stay plugged in all the time, we're always working, we're always spinning, and we're never able to get away from it at all. So it's very difficult now for us to have time with God that's undistracted. You know, it used to be, I remember when I was a teenager, they, they would, I remember learning in a youth group, get up early and read your Bible because then there's nobody else around. It's not really distracting at that time. I get up early and read my Bible, but I'm reading it in a window and there's a lot going on on the internet all the time. There, there are lots of distractions that can pull my mind away at any time. And so it's very difficult to just focus in and have this undistracted time with God. It's tough to have undistracted, uninterrupted time with family. You spend your day at work chasing down everything that beeps and whistles, and then you go home and everything's beeping and whistling, and you're running after that stuff, and it can seem like it never ends. So you're always working, you've always got something to do, and that can strain relationships, it can strain your prayer life, it can strain your walk with God, uh, your time in the Bible can be limited because we're constantly connected, we're never alone, we're always getting beeped at, and we've always got something to do. So we need to to check our hearts. I mean, it's worth asking yourself, can you spend a whole day without looking at your phone? Like a whole day. 
Not just those first few hours in the morning where you say, I'm doing this today. Can you go a whole day without checking Facebook or Instagram? Can you go a whole day without checking your email? Can you turn off the phone and not be afraid of what might be coming in because you're taking a day off from that? And we're so always connected, and it can really do some damage. I mean, we can reach this place in life where we're just never bored. I don't even remember the last time I was bored. Is, that, is boredom still a thing? Like, there's, there's just always something to do now. There, we, we're never disconnected. And so we're frenzied, we're working, we're chasing beeps, chasing buzzes. And it doesn't sound like what Jesus said when he said, if you come to me, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. We don't have that kind of peace. And the evidence that we don't have that peace inwardly is we're not able to take any time away outwardly. We don't rest well. And I'll tell you, I am right there with you. As Christians, we all have some areas of strength and some areas of weakness. And I would say this is one of the pronounced areas of weakness in my life. Um, that, That my inability to get away and rest, while I've seen some improvement over the last bunch of years, has always been one of my top three besetting sins. And so, so it feels a little bit like hypocrisy to get up and say, hey, do as I say and not as I do. Um, but that's exactly what I'm going to be doing for the rest of this sermon. Um, I'm going to be saying, here's what we're striving for together. I'm going to preach this sermon to myself as I preach it to you. Because I know for me, this is a besetting sin. This inability to get away, inability to rest, inability to unplug and unwind. And what we really need to do is figure out why it is that we just won't stop going repent of those reasons, and then pursue Jesus and his gospel and work some rhythms into our lives so that we can be changed over time. So why is it? You know, why can't we rest? I, I think one of the big myths that we have to blow up is that we can't rest because of our circumstances. Now, sometimes circumstances are the reason that you can't get some time off. Um, I know some of you are in crazy seasons of life where your work schedule is going to be crazy for the next couple of years. I mean, those of you who are in medicine, your residents, it's insane. And it's just insane by the nature of it. And there is no getting out of it. So the seasons will come where it's like that. But it's not always like that. I mean, there were times in my life where I was absolutely convinced it was just because of the season of life. It was just because of the circumstances around me. But then as circumstances changed, I was still going. I was still doing the same thing. When we planted Grace Road, this was the time, I mean, 2009, 2010, when I could see this in my heart and my life in the most pronounced way. I mean, we were, were just getting the church off the ground, and it was really small. It couldn't afford to pay me a salary that would enable uh, Debbie to stay home, and that's really important to us right now with the little kids. And so I had church, and that was full-time hours, and then I was working a couple of part-time jobs. And so I always thought, you know, if I could just start dropping those jobs, if I could drop a couple of jobs and just have church to focus on, then I'd be able to have normal work and rest rhythms in my life. Then I'd be able to unplug. Then I'd be able to take some time off. But because I have all these responsibilities, all these burdens, because of my circumstances, I can't rest. And then a couple of years ago, I was able to quit one of those part-time jobs, and I just filled that time with church stuff. And then I thought, well, what we really need is more full-time staff here. You know, when we first started, I was the only full-time staff, and so 75% of the decisions of the church were going through me, and I thought, it's my circumstances, I'm carrying too many loads, too many burdens, and so a couple years ago, Michael Barone came on our staff and carried an absolutely huge load, does an absolute ton, but my heart didn't change. The drivenness, the drive, the work all the time, even though I had less responsibility, that didn't change. 
This last January, I was able to quit the last of my part-time jobs, and so now Grace Road is my, my full-time ministry. I'm able to do this, and this is work. This is my ministry. I'm able to focus. We were able to bring John Ebel on staff, who carried another huge load, and still, there's this work-all-the-time drive. So while for a while I was able to fool myself and say, it's because of my circumstances, it's because of my job, when those circumstances changed, my heart didn't change. That drive didn't change. That work all the time didn't change. And I can no longer say that it's because of my circumstances. So if it's not circumstances, what is it? Now, before I go further, let me just say, I also think Christians should be very hard workers. I mean, we're not going to have time to talk about that today. We talked about it when we were in our Proverbs series last summer, when we talked about work and laziness. But when God set up the patterns for work and rest in the Bible, he set up a pattern of working six days and resting one. So it was a pattern where there was a lot of hard work, a lot of fruitful work, and he does command us as Christians to work very hard. I mean, Proverbs 10.5 says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So we can rest too much. We can be lazy, and the Bible is very much against laziness. But there's a difference between working hard when you should be working hard and trusting God for what you need and then the kind of work that just comes with anxiety that you can never get away from. Solomon wrote a lot of those Proverbs about work and laziness and warned about laziness, but then he also said this in Psalm 127, verse 2. He says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. So there's hard work on the one hand that the Bible is very much for, but then there's anxious toil the kind of work we can never get away from. And he says that it's a vain and empty thing. And a lot of us would look at the way that we work, we'd look at the way we can never get away, and we would say, it's just anxious toil. It's just nonstop responding to beeps and buzzes, not knowing if I'm going to have from God the grace that I need to respond to whatever's coming in on the other side of this phone or the other side of this email. I've got to get at it right away, and if I don't do these things, the whole world's going to fall apart. At the heart of our anxious toil really is unbelief in who God is for us. And because I don't fully believe in who Jesus says he is for me, I work constantly to fill that hole. An author named Peter Kreft said, we want to complexify our lives. We don't have to, we want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very things we complain about. For if we had leisure... We would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. So the reason that we're busy and restless is because we want to be. We're, we're looking to fill something in our hearts because ultimately we don't believe what we claim to believe. We don't believe that Jesus is for us who the Bible says he is, so we work constantly to fill that void. And there are two major areas where we work to fill the void in our hearts with our work, with our anxiety, with our go all the time, and those are in the areas of our security and our identity. For one, our security. We work hard because we need the security that we think money will bring us. If I can make enough money, if I can save enough money, if I can impress enough people so that I'll always be able to make more money, then I'll have peace. And I've got to scramble and fight for resources, fight against everybody else out there, make sure I can get my piece of the pie, because if I don't get enough resources, then we're in big trouble. I have to do all the work to secure myself, secure my family, secure my future. 
And that's exactly the way that we should live if we were atheists. If you're an atheist, then you don't believe that there is a God who provides for you. So you shouldn't be able to rest. You should be out there working hard because you've got to do all the providing. You're basically your own God. If you're an atheist, you believe that the resources in the world are limited because they weren't put there by God who cares and who made the world green to cause stuff to grow. There's only so much stuff here. So you have to go out and work for your own piece of the pie because no one else is going to look out for you. So you've got to compete hard for your share. You've got to work harder than everybody else. When those extra emails come in in the evening, the extra texts come in the evening, you've got to respond to those because if you don't, you lose your security. It's survival of the fittest, so you've got to work the hardest, work the most, work when the other guy is resting. Just keep working, just keep going so that you can win, and then you'll be okay, then you'll be secured, then you'll have enough. That's the way that we should live if we don't believe that there's a God. But what if we believe that there is? What if, you know, theoretically, we believed that there was a God up there who provided for us, who loved us, and loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, because it just says that if we believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says that he is, it should change the way that we live, particularly in regard to our anxiety and our restlessness, particularly in regard to our inability to unplug and get away. Romans eight thirty one, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So he says that while unbelievers may think they need to work and work and work because they're working for their security, Christians should be finding our security somewhere else. We should be finding our security in Jesus Christ who showed his love for us, who died for us, who gave all for us so that we can be free. So if we really believe that, then we should be able to rest from this desire to secure ourselves because our ultimate security comes from Christ. It comes from the gospel. It comes from his cross. God proved that he loves us. He proved that he's for us. Nothing will separate us from him. So I no longer need to work for my security. This means while I should go out and work hard, I'm not the ultimate provider for my family, my goddess. While I should work very hard and I should earn a living, money can't give me security. Only Jesus can. That whole fear of being separated from my source of security and not having any resources to draw from and nowhere to go is totally unjustified if I really believe the gospel. So if I'm able to take that faith in the cross and, and the love of God for me and push that into the corners of my heart that refuse to unplug and refuse to stop working, then I won't have that same drive to work to secure myself anymore. So because we don't believe Jesus' security for us, we can't unplug and we work all the time. Secondly, because we don't believe that Jesus Christ gives us an identity, we're always working for our own identity. 
We're always working to keep up this appearance that I'm good, I'm valuable, I matter, I'm somebody, there are good things going on in my life, and I want other people to believe that, and if I could just get a positive verdict from enough other people out there who all say, yes, you're good, then I'll find my peace, and then I'll find my rest. And this is one of the reasons that we just insist on staying totally plugged into social media all the time. Because I got to keep up this appearance that I'm smart, or that I'm funny, or I'm witty, or I'm smart enough to read really obscure blogs that you've never heard of, and obscure books that you've never heard of. I listen to all the right music, and it's obscure music. You've never heard of it. Um, uh, My kids, look at them. They are cuter than your kids, because I'm an awesome parent. I I need you to give me the approval that I'm pretty good. Uh, My life is an adventure, so I gotta post the pictures. I mean, here's the picture of me swinging on a rope over shark-infested waters. that's basically my life every day. It's nonstop. And so I need that appearance to be kept up. You know, I, um, I'm better than these other people who are out there in this other group or this other party. I'm better than them. I'm smarter than them. I'm the smart one. They're the dumb ones. I only eat the most beautiful and hip foods. And so I've got to keep these pictures flying in front of you all the time because I'm awesome. You know, I'm health conscious. I work out. Look how far I ran. Look at these things that I lifted. Um, Look at the workout that I had this morning. You were still you were still asleep. Um, We we try to keep this appearance out there. You know, look at my friends. I have the most authentic set of friends. Um, We sit around tables in well decorated restaurants, and we all have instruments. And we, we only eat the coolest looking food and we're very authentic. And that's why I took this picture of these friends and applied a filter so it looked like it was taken in 1960 to be authentic and to show you. And so we go and we go and we go and we're driven to keep up an appearance. And so it's one of the reasons that we'll stay connected. Because if I can just get this verdict from other people that I'm okay, then maybe that'll be enough. But really that hole in our hearts is a God-sized one. It's, it's a hole that Mark Zuckerberg isn't going to be able to fill. It's a hole that people giving us enough likes on Facebook will never fill. You know, so maybe you're still free from the temptation to build this identity online, but we're all working for it somewhere. I mean, maybe you're going to work and you're, you're going there so that you can buy the right status symbols that'll get you the positive verdict from people that you really want. You know, if my parents saw that I bought the right house and lived in the right neighborhood, then they'd be proud. And once my parents are proud, then I'd be able to sleep at night. Then I'd be able to rest. If my friends saw me sitting behind the wheel of the right kind of car or sitting behind the right kind of laptop or talking on the right kind of phone, then they'd be able to say, man, he's arrived, he's together, he knows his stuff. If I wore the kind of clothes that everybody said were the right kind of clothes, then they would think that I'm in tune with what should be. I'm right, I'm okay, and now I've got this good identity. Sometimes the busyness in our lives can come in our family lives because we'll just totally overschedule our kids because we get our identity from being the best parents and better than all the other parents that are out there. So you always feel burdened and hurried because you've got them involved in 15 different activities and you're running all the time and you're doing this not necessarily for their good. I mean, I think there are good God-glorifying reasons to plug kids into activities, get them doing some stuff. But you do all this because these kids exist to make a name for you and to make you look good. They exist for your glory And so you're frenzied, always trying to keep up with everybody else, making sure your kids are better than everyone else. And it starts from before they're born. They come out as babies and you start looking at all the developmental charts just to make sure that your kid is keeping up with all the other kids. And if 13 months in, your kid isn't walking, you're freaking out. 
You know, something's wrong. They're supposed to be walking at a year. This kid over here, he was walking at eight months. My kid's 13 months and he's not walking yet. Listen, he's going to walk. It's, it's going to be okay. I mean, nobody ever sees a 20-year-old stumbling down the street and says, probably a late walker. Um, <laughs> probably didn't walk till he was 15. Probably has terrible parents. Um, no, I mean, I, we, we work and work and work to make sure that our kids keep up. We got to make sure that if five-year-olds can ride bikes, then my five-year-old better be riding a bike. And if he's five and a half and he's not, I'm getting a bike tutor to come to the house five nights a week. We're scheduling everything around it because I have to maintain this image that my kids are okay because I'm okay because I'm a good parent. So we've got this inner drive to make a name for ourselves and it keeps us going. It keeps us working the extra hours. It keeps us scheduling our lives. It keeps us plugged in. And we feel like we can never get away because if we, don't, if we do get away, our name could be forgotten. And that's our worst fear. And C.S. Lewis said this. He said, men tell not only their wives but themselves that it's a hardship to stay late at the office or the school or some bit of important extra work, which, which they go to because so-and-so and two others and they are the only people left in the place who really know how things run but it's not quite true. It is a terrible bore, of course, when old Fatty Smithson draws you. Does anyone work with anyone named Fatty? (laughs) And if you call him that, you'd probably get fired. But it's a terrible bore when old Fatty Smithson draws you aside and whispers, look here, we've got to get you in on this examination somehow. Or Charles and I think that you've got to be in on this committee. It's a terrible bore. Ah, but how much more terrible if you were left out? It's tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoons, but to have them free because you don't matter, that's much worse. So there's this constant pressure to be included, to do more, to be more, to make a name for ourselves. And that is a wearying, exhausting, heavy-laden life. We love the sound of our own name, and our biggest fear is that a day will come when nobody will speak it because I don't matter at all. And that kind of life is completely exhausting. And it's never the life that God intended. In fact, if you want to turn back to Genesis chapter 11, we're turning around a little bit here. If you don't want to turn to all of them, we put them on the screen. But um, in Genesis, God had commanded his people that they were there to live for his glory. They were to bear his image. They were to spread out around the world and make a name for God. The, the thing we're supposed to live for is to make the name and renown of God great. And so he had called his people to do that. And then in Genesis eleven three, they decided not to do that. It says, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we dis- be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So listen to the two things they're living for. Security and identity. Security. We don't want to be dispersed all around the world. If we get too spread out, we could be in big trouble. And we don't have a God who's out there to provide for us and protect us and care for us. We can't think about obeying him. So there's no way we're going to spread out. We're going to live for our own security. We're going to build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. And then they said, let's make a name for ourselves. We need to be somebody. We need an identity. We need to be great. And that was never the life that God intended. So in Genesis eleven five it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. 
Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. So God sees these people living for the wrong name to make themselves an identity. He sees these people trying to secure themselves when only he can secure them, and he says, this is not right, and he confuses them, he confounds their ambition, and he scatters them around the world. Listen, one of the reasons that our lives just seem so frenzied and frustrating all the time is because we work for our own names, our own identity, we work for our own security, and it'll just never be enough. You can't make your own name great because you know you're not great. You can't secure yourself because it'll never be enough. Sometimes you're trying to build this identity because you're trying to overcome this past failure. You know you've sinned. You know you've been a disappointment. You know you're not who other people think you are. You've let people down. You've let yourself down. So you say, I've failed, and now I need to work so that I can do more, so I can be more, so I can be different. And there will be no rest for your soul. There's no rest in that work. There's no rest in even religious busyness where you look at yourself and say, man, I've let down my parents, but now this way that I can be good is by being the best Christian. So if I can be a better Christian than my brothers and sisters, then maybe my parents will say I'm awesome. So I'll fill my life with five different church activities every single week. And it's not because I really feel called to them. It's not because those are part of the mission that I'm on. It's just because I've got to be busy so that I can be better. And that kind of religion will exhaust you too. So the solution to our inability to rest really has to be a heart-level solution, and it has to be the gospel. Where we have to start when we see that frenzy and that inability to rest in our lives is we have to start by believing what we believe, that Jesus came to secure us, and Jesus came to win for us an identity that we could never win for ourselves. That Jesus came to bear all the burdens that we're trying to bear because we can't bear them. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says, Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So listen to the language here of Jesus bearing the burden. It says he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Our chastisement was upon him. Our iniquity was laid upon him. So all these burdens that we carry and we feel like we can never let go because then we'll never be secure, never have an identity, all of those burdens were already carried by Jesus so we don't need to carry them anymore. All the things that we're really after with all of our work and our inability to unplug would be ours for free if we would just receive them from Jesus. What we're really after deep underneath all of this, deep underneath this quest for the praise from men, deep underneath this quest to to be the best dad and the best worker and the best provider is a desire to be loved and accepted by God. And the reason the work never ends is because there there isn't enough work we could do to achieve that kind of acceptance. The gospel says that he came to give that to us and to give it to us totally freely. He came to give us this new identity as adopted sons and daughters of God if we'll just believe in Jesus. So if we believe that we've been made sons and daughters of God, if we believe that we've been made the heirs, then that frees us from having to go out to work to make ourselves something. Ephesians says this. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Listen to how it says that Jesus is everything that we're after. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So it says that if we believe the gospel, he loves us, he accepts us, he chose us, he gives us this new identity as sons and daughters, and nobody is more loved and accepted than a son or a daughter. Nobody. I mean, if, if I walk in the door of my house and you're laying on my couch, I might ask why you're there. Um, it's, it's a little weird if you came over uninvited and just kind of crashed the couch. And, I mean, if you want to come over, you can. Um, and if you want to lay on that couch, you can. We have four kids. It's pretty nasty, but, but go for it. Um, it. It would be weird if I walked in and someone who wasn't one of my kids was on the couch. But if I walk in and one of my kids is on the couch, I don't say, what are you doing here? Because they're my kids. They belong there. There's a level of love and acceptance for my kids that not everybody has. My kids don't need an invitation at all. My kids are loved and accepted by me not because of anything that they do. And when they were born, I didn't say, we got to teach these kids to write because we got to fill out a lease agreement. Um, I mean, if they're going to be living in my house, we got to come to some terms here. they got to keep their end of the bargain. I'll keep my end of the bargain. If they keep it clean, they can stay. If not, they're going to lose their security deposit. That's not the way it works. As much as I've been trying, I cannot get my kids to pay rent. Um, like the seven-year-old even won't pay rent. And it's, it's rough. But we know that they won't. We, we know that kids don't pay for their love and acceptance. It's theirs for free. The gospel teaches that what we have from God, the love and acceptance we have from him, is not something we can pay for. It's something that was given to us totally for free. But we spend our days working for it frenzied to get what only the gospel offers and we're looking for it in all all the wrong places and it's never enough. Verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The word forgiveness there is afiemi. It means a release. All these burdens, all that you're carrying, the frenzy, the, the inability to unplug, the constant need to work and work and work, can all be released in Jesus Christ. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his, his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So listen to how Jesus gives us our identity, sons and daughters of God. He gives us the acceptance that we think we need from other people, but it's never enough. He gives us the acceptance that we have from God, and he gives us security. He promises us a future. He promises us an inheritance. All things that were given to him are also his because we're the heirs. He's given us something amazing. He's what you're working for, and it's not something you have to work for. He's what you're trying to pay for, and you can have him for free. The security, the future, the acceptance, the purpose, the meaning in this world, it's yours in Jesus Christ. But the reason we still work 
is because we don't believe it. Jesus has given us something that can't be earned by victories. It can't be lost by failures. It's totally free. And when our lives are always stressed, always frantic, not just for a season, but we just never get over the fact that we can't rest and then we can't get away, it's because we don't believe him. We don't believe what we say we believe and we're exhausting ourselves on a treadmill that we don't need to be on. So we can rest. We can rest in him and his name, his security, his love, his acceptance. And then work can become just work. And money can become just money. And that temporary name that you might get for yourself if you're successful at your career is something that you don't have to cling to so closely and feel like you've got to defend that reputation because it's temporary anyway. We're living for a different name. If we really believe what we say we believe, it changes us. If we believe Jesus is our rest, then we have that inner, inner peace that allows us to rest. And a rhythm of life that God has called us to build into our lives, to preach the truth to ourselves that we can't work for the ultimate things, is a rhythm of Sabbath rest. In Exodus 20, verse 8, God said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God's designed a rhythm in our lives of taking one day out of seven that's a day where you don't work. A day where you remind yourself that I can't work for the things that I need the most. A day when you remind yourself that all this toil, all this striving is not for the most important thing, which is forgiveness, relationship with God, my identity, my security. All of that is given to me for free. And by cutting off work for a day a week, you're preaching that truth to yourself. You're preaching that gospel to yourself. And I know that work life is crazy these these days, and this is not designed to be an extra burden. In fact, in Jesus' day, they misinterpreted the Sabbath commands in a way that made them an extra burden on people's lives. So people heard about Sabbath, and they thought, oh, great, one more thing I've got to do. It's supposed to be the opposite of that. It's supposed to be a getting away from all you're having to do. And so if you're one of those people who's in your residency or you're in that crazy season of life, you're starting a business, this isn't meant to be this extra burden. But Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man. There's something that was made for you, a pattern of work and rest that was made for you by God that as close as you can get to having that going on in your life, the more you'll be preaching the gospel to yourself and the more you'll find yourself getting free from all the anxious toil. Now, if right now you're getting nervous when you hear it and you say, man, I couldn't take a day off work, what would happen? You probably need it more than anybody else. You probably need this rhythm where you remind yourself every week that you're not God, And remind yourself that you live because of his grace. Your identity comes to you because of his grace. Your security comes to you because of his grace. It's not by anything that you do. So allow yourself to be tested by that. Do you have that rhythm in your life? Is there a day when you can unplug from anything that would make your name great? Unplug from anything that would make you an identity? Unplug from anything that you feel gives you security so that you can remind yourself that you're living for the name of God and so that you're secured by Jesus Christ? Can you do that? Or does it just scare you to even think about it? Because if it scares us to think about it, we aren't believing the gospel like we should. 
So a good rhythm in life is to take that day off every week where you're unplugged. Take some time off most days where you're unplugged, disconnected, where you're with the people you love. Take that day where all you do is rest and do things that refresh and replenish you. A day for worship, a day for rest, a day for fun, a day for eating good food, a day for hanging out with the people you love so that you can be replenished and remind yourself that life is not about all the work you do. I think if we become like that, we become a lighthouse in Rochester. Because really, the world is just totally full of anxious people. You know, they don't believe there's a God providing. They don't believe there's a God looking out for them, giving them an identity. So they have to work all the time. You know, it's a world full of teenagers who are anxious and worried about what their name's going to be like in school this year. Are people going to like me? Am I going to have new friends? Are they going to think I'm okay? Adults who want to impress the boss so that their name can be great. Impress the neighbors. Impress the parents. People who are anxious about their health and have to obsess over exercise and obsess over whether the food is healthy enough. And we should be people who work very hard but are able to unplug and not obsess and be free. And if we're free people like that, then we can, be, we can have joy, we can be a light, and people will look at us and not just hear about the gospel that we speak, but see the implications as it's lived out in our lives. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Christians, we're called to live like the gospel that we believe is true because we really believe it. So as you look at yourself honestly, can you say that there is a rhythm of rest in your life? Are you good at unplugging and disconnecting and not working so that you can preach the truth to yourself that the most important things are not things you work for? Do you have that day where you can get refreshed? And if you don't, it's more than just about forcing that day into your life. It's about asking yourself why. Why is belief short-circuiting? And preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel so that you can take that day, build it into your life, and so that day itself can continually remind you the truth of what Jesus did for you. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, a lot of good things, that you beat money in, you, you change enough in your life, and if you do all those things, then that'll make you a good Christian. You may think that's what Christianity is. It's all about work. But when you read through the Bible, you see over and over places where Jesus says, if you come to me, I'll give you rest. A light burden, a light yoke. Now, the way that we come to Jesus, the way we become Christians is not at all by the works that we do. It's by recognizing that I can't work for what's ultimate. By recognizing that I can't do enough good things to get God to love and accept me and forgive me. And so I accept the work he did for me. I accept the work that Jesus did for me on the cross by dying for me and being buried and rising again. I believe that he did that for me in my place. And as I believe in that cross, I turn from my sin, I turn from my unbelief, and I just trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for my right standing with God. So if you're here and you're not a believer, I would, I would urge you to turn from what's driving you, turn from that thing that's ultimate to you and recognize that Jesus is ultimate Hang your trust, your heart, and your life on him. Trust in his death for you on the cross, and he promises that if you come to him on those terms, he won't lose you. He'll adopt you as a son or daughter of God. The identity that you're after will be yours. The security that you're after will be yours. It's not going to come in the form you expected it to come in, but it comes in the form of a savior on a cross who died to purchase you the things that you could never purchase. And that's great news. 
That's why we get together to worship him. That's why we get together on this day that for many is this day of rest so that we can start by worshiping and reminding our hearts of the gospel so that the rest of the day is fueled by this reminder that Jesus Christ is our sufficiency. He is all we need. Heavenly Father, we repent. Uh, we, We confess, Lord, we've been paying for what we get for free. We've been working for what's already ours and it's never enough. Lord, the the hole in our heart is too big for us to fill with our frenzy. It's too big for us to fill with the identity and the name that we make for ourselves. Lord, we work and we work and work for something that you've already given us. And Lord, it's a slap in your face and it's spitting on your cross. So we confess and we turn from that. And Jesus, we believe your gospel again. Thank you that you died for sinners like us. Thank you that you died for people who just don't trust you like we should, who don't believe like we should. But Lord, I pray that as this gospel works into our hearts, that it would change us and we would be people who believe you like we should and that that would be manifest in our lives, that we have lives where we work very hard but then rest very well and disconnect well and honor you with that day that you've given us for rest, with the time you've given us for rest, and by reminding ourselves that the most important things are not things we can work for. Jesus, you're good to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, even when we don't trust you. Lord, we believe, but please help our unbelief this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name.